Welcome to the John Sando podcast. Um, today we are talking to Helena Attlee about her new book, Lev's Violin, published by Particular Books in April 2021. Helena has been writing for many years about gardens, particularly around the world, uh, wonderfully photographed by Alex Ramsey, her partner. She's done a couple of fabulous books on Italian gardens and also gardens of Japan, of Great Britain, Wales and Portugal. Her last book was a showstopper of another kind, a work of non-fiction without photographs called The Land Where Lemons Grow, published in 2014. This was about citrus growing in Italy, and rightly it was a bestseller at Sandoz, where we had piles of it. Those piles just ran down as fast as the sand in an hourglass, um, and we had enormous fun selling it to people and had lots of gorgeous feedback. And now we have a new book from Helena at last, and it's called Lev's Violin, An Italian Adventure, also published by Particular Books earlier this month. Needless to say, it's been eagerly anticipated. So Helena, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's a great pleasure to be welcoming you to the John Sando podcast series, and I hope that we will be doing this again and again in the years to come. Thank you. So your book... Lev's Violin. Uh, publication was delayed, like so many others, by the pandemic. In your case, however, the book was pulled about a, a bit, I mean, it was barely a month before um, its intended initial publication in 2020. Um, at the very last possible moment, really, and just at the point when pre-publication activity, nerves, adrenaline, the watching for reviews, scheduling interviews, all those kind of things that would normally have been feverish. Was it very startling, this sudden delay? And I wonder whether it's um, increased the sense of limbo these past 12 months. Is it strange to re-engage with a book after a whole year of it being finished? Is it a friend? Is it still a friend? A rediscovered friend? Good questions. I... At the time, I was very relieved that publication was delayed because it felt that the book would come out into a void of um, difficulties with distribution, closed bookshops. Just, it just felt as if Penguin were really looking after me, actually, when they decided to delay it. Um, they could have brought it out in at the end of um, 2020, but they said it would be lost in a plethora of um, celebrity biographies for Christmas. And they felt it was more of a spring book. And so out it came, um, whatever it is, 1st of April, so three weeks ago, nearly three weeks ago, in what feels like a much more hopeful climate. But of course, you're absolutely right. I've had to re-engage with it. You know, when you, when you write a book, um, and there's usually a year between submitting your final manuscript and publication, and so all that material is still at the front of your mind. You, you're still um, inhabiting it, if you like. And I've had the curious experience of having to reread my own book <laughs> and um, remember you know, remember all the things I did. I'm sometimes quite surprised by the things I did. So it's, it's been a, a publication like no other for me. Yes, I can imagine that um, that re-engagement must 
be rather sort of fascinating. Is that really, was that me? Was I there? Did I have that conversation? Of course I did, yes. But yeah. the way it would come yes. back to in a slightly different way. And perhaps the best introduction to it um, is your opening paragraph. I mean, rightly, but also it's quite rare that an opening paragraph is quite as uh, seizes one in such a fantastic way. And in rather, I mean, rather typically of you, I think. In that opening paragraph, one is taken to places and thoughts we didn't expect with a relish and a wonderful vitality. And I wondered whether you'd just like to read that opening paragraph for us, please. For sure. Absolutely. I still remember everything. The warm night, the rows of seats all taken and mine right at the front. Music filled the darkened room, overflowing through open windows onto the streets of a small Welsh town. It doesn't matter now what klezmer tune it was that made us restless on our chairs or pulled some people to their feet and had them dancing in those narrow spaces. What matters is the moment when two steps took the violin player to the front of the stage and all the other instruments, accordion, piano, drums and double bass fell silent. For that is when I heard the violin speak for the first time, with a voice powerful enough to open pores and unbuckle joints, and a shocking intimacy that left us all stupid with longing for emotions larger, wilder, sadder and more joyful than we'd ever known. And after the applause faded and the lights came up, my old friend Rhoda turned her laughing face to me and said, how dare he speak to us like that, darling? We're married women. <laughs> it's absolutely I have, lovely. <laughs> I have to say that Rhoda was, ooh, 87, 88 at that point. <laughs> so it was, it was great. It was a lovely moment. In a sense, it was Rhoda who, with that, joke because it was such a good comment I felt that I wanted to tell the violin player you know I just thought it would make him laugh and that's what that's what connected me I went up to him in in the street afterwards to tell him and that's how the whole thing kicked off so the sort of extraordinary emotional impact of hearing the violin and then Rhoda's joke and then the connection we made and the story he told us and that that's what set me off on four years of kind of crazy investigation. An extraordinary yeah. goose chase. A, a real goose chase. Yes. An extraordinary goose chase. Yeah. And also I rather, I mean, I love the way that he left, he goes off to roll a cigarette and get a pint and leaves you holding his wonderful yeah. violin. Yeah, he tells me, I mean, he's always, Greg, his name is, I didn't know that. Um, but he meters out his story. He's, uh, I say this in the book, his grandfather was a terrific storyteller and he's really got the gene. And he, he's got the ability, I mean, it was, it was as if he knew exactly what, who I was. It was extraordinary. He said this violin comes from Cremona. You know, if he'd said anything else, I would have thought, well, you know, fantastic sound what a mystery that is and sort of wandered away but it was this thing he said comes from Cremona and because of Italy and the way that I know Italy 
I know about Cremona. I don't know about, didn't know about violins, um, but I knew about Cremona and I knew what it meant. It's like giving your dog the highest pedigree it can have. You know, yeah. it's a huge thing because it's where the, the three violin makers who are still household names, Amati, Guarneri and Stradivari, they all came from it. So I knew that, but he followed that up by saying it was worthless. And it was that disjunction that obsessed me, really, came to obsess me. That hour or so changed your life, changed you. Mm. Changed your life for the next four years. The curiosity is fired, but I imagine that there was a lot more to it rather than just, oh, I think I'll go and find out about this violin. I wonder how soon the idea came to you that there was really a thread that you wanted to follow and a story that you wanted to tell, even if the story actually just becomes the process of looking. You mentioned that you're in the book, that your mother had recently died and you were having to dismantle her world by dispersing the objects that she had lived with. And so you were perhaps, do you think you were particularly attuned to objects and their stories and the loss of those stories, the gaps? I think I, um, looking back, I think it was as, as much as anything, it was an emotional need, um, a response to this idea of, as you say, a, a thing um, with a story attached to it. And I was so aware with my mother's furniture and possessions that many of them had stories that I hadn't quite, I couldn't quite remember, I hadn't quite listened carefully enough, I hadn't written them down and now they were all swilling about um, and I felt that it was sort of disrespectful really that I didn't know enough about them and so this was in a sense even if it was almost unconscious this was a chance to set that right this was this was a, a, a beautiful worn hard-working antique which I find fascinating as well you know working for its living every day you know in the way Greg plays it's he really hammers his instruments it was working in um, the BBC Symphony Orchestra all week and then it was doing these gigs all over the country at weekends in fields, in halls and, and um, I just thought I would like to get its story straight and get it, get it, yeah, get it down, get it down so it wasn't lost. So there was, you're absolutely right, there was that thing going on in my life that, um, very sad time at the beginning of this process. Yes, and the sort of loss of knowledge, that's, yes, and find, tra following something else that quietly redemptive, perhaps. It wasn't perhaps yeah. the best object to choose, but... <laughs> <laughs> Most extraordinary object with a sort of life of its own. Later on in the book, you describe how it just sort of disintegrated in its box. It's an amazing creature, the sense of the life of this aged, yes. hard-working... The thing about it is that it's actually in my office now, it's here. And um, it did, it, 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 it broke its neck, which is a pretty... And it sort of did it to itself. <laughs> Greg, it was very odd affinity between them. Greg injured his hand, his playing hand, really quite badly. 
and it um, when he opened the case to get it out when he was better it had, it's it had fallen off its body um, and the thing that's fascinating me at the moment because part of this process and I I don't know how this sounds I, I, I suspect it sounds very pretentious but it was very real to me at the time it was an experiment in what happens if you simply accept a story that somebody tells you and you just hold it I had this sense I was holding this story not tight I was holding I was just it was in my hands and I just let it unfold and I thought you know, I'll just see where it takes me. I'll just see what happens and I will be loyal to it and just follow it. And the extraordinary thing is that the book was broadcast on Radio 4. And during that week of it being broadcast, um, Greg was contacted by a violin dealer saying that he would be interested in repairing the violin um, for very much less than Greg had been quoted before. I was contacted by a funding dealer who said that if he thought it was perhaps mine now because he'd heard it was in my office mm. um, and he said that if I would allow him to sell it for me he would actually cover the cost of the repair and so you realize that this violin that has been deemed worthless in the process of having a book written about it has mm. taken on a completely new value which yeah. And so the story it, that I've held hasn't stopped unfolding because now we're talking about setting up a crowdfunding campaign to raise the little bit of money that will be needed to repair it and then off it'll go with a new life. That is, is lovely news. I like the thought of it being on your desk, even in its sort of rather collapsed state. Yes. It, you begin by hearing it and then you're holding it you're left holding the baby by Greg when he goes off and at the very end it's back with you and that's you go off on this extraordinary journey you're taken to Cremona you go to Piedmont you go to Russia you go to Glasgow uh, Glasgow. rather nearer to home but and then historically you know roaming through northern Italy from the over the last sort of 400 years of yeah. you know the invention of the modern violin by Amati those extraordinary luthiers in Cremona 20th century story of dispersal with the Nazis and the looting and then a lot of instruments ending up in Russia which is probably the route that yours took in fact we discover yes yeah. your journey the one one of my favorite parts of it was um your description of the timber, of the getting of the alpine spruce for the bodies in the Italian Dolomites. Uh, yeah, I think the local tourist board call it the Forest of Violins. <laughs> yes. um, but ever since uh, Amati started making violins in, well, I suppose about 1530s in Cremona, Andrea Amati, um, the tone wood, resonance wood, for the tops of violins, um, which is alpine spruce, has been grown in those incredibly high forests where trees grow very, very slowly and the climate is very predictable. So their rings are close together um, and they're you know, very, very regular. 
growth, which makes very good tone wood. And the process for getting that wood from those forests to Cremona, I mean, that was, that took me weeks to write that chapter because the detail, the, it's a whole, well, it's an economy, it's an industry that covers, that incorporates so many different people from the mountain farmers, the alpine farmers, who are, who, who multitask as woodcutters, boschieri, um, but are wonderfully unreliable because of course their first uh, loyalty is always to their own farms. Um, and so they're always, they, they start cutting down trees as soon as the snow melts enough for them to get into the forests in at the beginning, uh, beginning of June, probably that is because it's so high. But no sooner do they get fell a few trees than they've got to go up and cut the hay. And they don't come back until they've cut it and brought it in. And then they come back, but then they've got to take the cows up for the, you know, up to the summer pastures higher up the mountain so they go away again. But they, they eventually, by some means or other, um, get all this timber out very often and I, I've actually seen it still being done in Romania um, fascinatingly chains behind a horse and you attach the chains to the trunk and then you pull it out they used horses and oxen they had to have it all out by November stacked on the edge of the forest I think it's St Martin's Day in November always just like in the land where lemons grow there are saints days in the lives of lemon trees you know what has to be done when it's the same with the the timber so it's all brought out and then they hand over to the next group of specialists and they're the people whose job is even more dangerous I mean it's dangerous enough cutting timber on a very steep slope but getting these huge tree trunks down the side of the mountain to the river is the next job and because it um they use the snow and ice to slide the uh, timber down. It has to be done in the absolute dead of an alpine winter. And again, all these people are quite impoverished. And I mean impoverished, they have, they're living, I suppose they're subsistence farmers and, and, and their lives in all ways, they live at a subsistence level. So the people who employ them, who are the timber dealers, provide them with food Every six hours they serve polenta in kind of camp kitchens for them. Um, they give them all the tools they need. They even sometimes give them the cloth they need to make clothes. It's all part of their pay. And these guys find a way to bring the things down the mountain and they build sort of chutes for them and they, um, if there's a track they'll take it down, you know, and if it's and they'll pour water down the track so that it freezes and then they'll slide them down. If it goes too fast, they'll put grout earth on it or gravel. You know, they're just moderating it all the time and getting run over and killed um, because it's so dangerous. You know, they have these timber chutes, but of course the logs, um, sometimes they just jump out and squash people. And so there were little crosses all over the mountainside where people had died in this mm. industry. But timber was, I mean, something I realized is that timber was as valuable in the, 
in pre-industrial cities, really, as oil was to us in the 20th century. It was one of the most valuable resources in the world. And so people would do anything, really, to, to, to get it. And most of that timber ended up coming down the Brenta and the Brenta Canal yeah, and to Chioggia and to Venice, and presumably yeah. was mostly used for shipbuilding. But so a certain, a small amount was then bought by merchants and shipped up the Po to Cremona. There was a wonderful um, similarity between the quality of timber needed to make masts and timber needed to make violin bellies. They both needed to be not free. They needed to have these very tight rings, be very uniform. And of course the arsenal in Venice had terrific power to get all the resources it needed. So there was always good mast stroke resonance wood arriving in Chioggia, being brought and marketed in Venice. And then um, crossing the lagoon, I cut into slabs in Venice and taken across the lagoon and hauled up the Po um, and taken to Corona. And uh, so, you know, such a watery, <laughs> a watery existence because those logs have been brought in a series of rivers all the way from the foot of the mountains to the end of the Brenta Canal floating and even built into rafts, you know, to, to make it more convenient. Fairly late on in your book, there's a, a chapter about the revival of violin making in Cremona after a long period where it had just faded, workshops disbanded, the craftsmen dead, no, the tradition uh, lost, really. Um, and the ways in which the modern violin makers, they use the same sort of resonance wood if they possibly can, but yeah. it's not, it hasn't spent all those months no. floating down rivers and being dragged up rivers. And so the things that they do, they boil somebody, they try boiling it, they soak it, they do all sorts of things to try and bring they about that same effect. It's Yeah, they introduce um, different fungi into it. Um, that will eat certain elements of the wood, but mm. not others. But of course, the person who's really cracked this is somebody, one of the many amazing people that I met in the course of this journey was Melvin Goldsmith. And what he does is use old wood. And he's, he's just had, I mean, I think he was very lucky. He just bought, he thought he'd try this. He's been making violins since he was a child. and. He just searched on Google and he found somebody selling antique wood in, I suppose, the Tyrol somewhere, up, right up in um, northern, right up in the north of Italy, that sort of borderland between Austria and Italy. And he just bought it on the internet, sight unseen, and it came. And it looked, when he got it, it was very, very dirty. And it looked um, not that old. You know, inside, it really looked uh, quite pale and quite new. The outside was filthy. And he went off and had it tested by a dendrochronologist and found out not only that it was um, 17th century, but that it had the same dendrochronological um, imprint as some of the violins made by Stradivarius. So that really sent him off on a, on a journey. And... Um, 
fascinating. I mean, he makes he makes makes violins out of wood that has already been a barn or an old chalet, and it's all very scarred and dirty. And then he turns it into these beautiful new violins that are copies of old violins, um, carefully signed by him. They're not fakes; they're copies. That's a whole tradition. And made for, yeah, made for professional violinists. That brings us on to another rather wonderful aspect of your book, where you delve into the the history of the violin trade and the early faking it, and a very early date, the changing of labels, the all sorts of things. One of the things that made Lev's violin difficult to place was the lack of any signature or label, which meant that it couldn't be ruled out as being something simply by not having a label. Yes, yes. I mean, labels, labels don't really count for all that much. Um, it's extraordinary the lengths that people will go to to forge a label, and that's been going on. I mean, it, it's so interesting because the uh, the idea, the tradition of copying violins starts in Niccolò Amati's workshop when he's forced to take on apprentices when all the rest of his family have died in the plague. And he worked with Girolamo, his father, who was Andrea's son. And he was, you know, he was an absolute star himself. And they only ever employed people in the family. So all their secrets stayed within the Amati. And then the plague came in 1630, I think it was, and killed a lot of them. And so he had to take on apprentices. And actually those apprentices are some of the great names in violin making, Italian violin and German violin making. But how he taught them was they simply copied. You know, they, they copied his work, um, even down to copying his labels, forging his, so to speak, his signature. And um, it, obviously it wasn't going to be very long when, until that went wrong. <laughs> that was obviously going to go badly wrong eventually. And uh, I think probably the first person who, well, no, probably wasn't. I think mistakes were made fairly early on where people would buy a violin thinking it was made by somebody and then they'd lift the label up and find it was made by a pupil of who signed it underneath. But the really meddling, messing about with labels starts with Tarizio in the very beginning of the 19th century. Um, one of the first great international violin dealers who had absolutely no qualms about just changing the date on a label so something fell into Strad's golden period, you know, or, or even changing names, I'm afraid, swapping labels. Had a great collection of labels. <laughs> <laughs> um, another bit that I absolutely loved is um, the section about opera, the explosion of Italian music, the way that the new violins enabled composers to extend their compositions in ways that nobody had done or thought about before. And this fantastic explosion of opera in, uh, in every Italian town. And you talk a lot about the Teatro Rossini and describe how people used to inhabit their their opera houses with servants heating food in the corridors, people playing cards, sleeping, shouting, 
Um, but always there, night after night, same thing being performed, but everybody going. Um, one has the sense of this extraordinary, riotous, operatic yes. machine, um, which actually included not just the singers and the musicians and their violins, but also the audience who are living in those buildings practically. And you always say they always burn down. Well, not surprising. Mm. Yes, I um, I went to Paisano uh, because I've always, for years, I've been hearing about these little wooden opera houses that you know, every town um, would have a church, uh, a town hall and an opera house in their main square. And it was it was a much more democratic thing than it is today, opera. And oh God, another extraordinary economy. You know, Tans expected a new opera every season with new costumes um, and huge investment required. But building the opera house was very often by public subscription. And if you subscribed, then you had a box, a family box, to which you had the key. It was passed from generation to generation. And um, there were these travelling opera companies that would come and the impresario, always a man, um, uh, bought an opera, gathered the musicians. Um, sometimes they had to just get local people who could play a bit in the orchestra, you know, if there wasn't a lot of money. So you'd suddenly see your fishmonger playing the trumpet or something, you know, maybe still in his apron. And um, as you said, the same thing was played night after night after night through the season so that you would expect the audience to dwindle and dwindle but it was the social life for the winter. You could buy different kinds of tickets to get into opera houses. Um, you could buy a ticket that just let you into the building and you could just go and play cards for money in a room you know, that was going on, or you could just go in to buy some food. Um, or you could go in and stand in front of the stage. Um, and there was sort of hierarchy of where people sat. So uh, you can imagine, you know, down in front of the stage, standing, no seats, were the people who could pay less. And then the families who were subscribers had the first tier of boxes and they went up, 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 up. And at the top, actually you get a great view but you're in with everybody, so it's not so smart. And reading descriptions, you know, sometimes really everybody seems to be doing anything but listening to the opera. They're all talking to each other, they're outside playing cards, they're still eating their supper, but then an aria will come on that's everybody's favourite, and they cheer so loud that there has to be on call after it. They all stand up, you know, all in one. They just, this is the bit they like. And for days afterwards, you know, when a new opera um, came to Venice, there's a description of everybody in the street is singing bits of it. You know, the gondoliers, you just walk along the streets and you hear snatches of it. And they had to, um, can't remember which opera it is, unfortunately, without looking at my own book, but there was an incident, a Rossini opera, where they had to um, send everybody out of the courtroom 
all the public out of the courtroom because they were just singing while the judge was trying to try somebody. So it was a kind of um, an absolute mania and, and described as such, you know, and, 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 and I don't know, what would you call it now? I, not a cult, but people were just so invested in it. You quote um, Lampedusa, who was absolutely fed up with it. Uh, he, <laughs> I'm quoting from, from you, he believed it sucked up all Italy's energy for the arts, so that when the mania subsided at the beginning of the 20th century, Italy's creative life was, quote, like a field which locusts have ravaged for a hundred years. <laughs> Moving away from the instruments and music destined for sort of princely and ducal courts, aristocratic palaces in Italy, the, the, and then the, its diaspora in Austro-Hungary and Russia, you go looking for clues about Lev's violin amongst the Roma people. That's a very interesting and moving chapter of your book. It was one of those, um, <laughs> it's one of those bits of research that uh, didn't turn out at all as I'd intended. I mean, difficult, really difficult thing to do. Um, it would be hard to do here, but trying to make those connections um, in Italy from here was 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 really hard um i had a connection um, again what's he called uh spin spinelli yeah yeah well he's a, a huge character and um, i mean i'm really used to to doing this with the books i do i just make a contact with someone and then i just set out and this was such a a really classic example of how I don't always know what I'm getting myself into, really. And I didn't really take on board that I was going to see him at a time when they were celebrating the unveiling of the first monument to the Roma killed during the Holocaust. And there was a conference um, the day before that, which was my opportunity to meet him. But of course he was he was actually in charge, so he was very busy. And it was, it was a desperately harrowing conference with Roma academics and um, all sorts of different people, really, from all, all over the world had come to speak. And then at the end of it, he, and he played. He played, he and his band, his family, his family band played. And it was, it was great. It was great and it was exciting, and, and, but it was over very fast. Um, and then uh, I went up to introduce myself, and this is all in the book. I sort of said, you know, I've come, here I am, because we've been in touch, here I am, it's Helen, and I've come from England to see you. And he said, oh, fantastic, let's have dinner together tonight. And I thought, it was perfect. And, you know, it was not until that night that it was me and 700 other people having dinner with him. So, <laughs> um, but the position of Roma in in Italy and I think I don't know what it is but I do seem to be you know I you know I love Italy I've spent so much of my life there in one way or another but I I have this compulsion to reveal that it is not all romantic there's a lot there's a lot of ugliness and I 
when I went to Florence, um, and again, God, that was so, so, it so didn't turn out well. Um, talking to a young, a very, very young Roma couple, uh, and they'd actually had their children um, taken away from them um, uh, in a way that they'd been duped. They'd been duped by an adoption agency who'd actually effectively stolen their children. That's effectively what had happened. And um, I didn't, don't go into all this in the book, but the result of them telling me about this was that the, um, the woman was so upset that she couldn't speak to me again. That was awful in every sense. It was awful that we'd brought all that material up together because she had that compulsion that we always have to share things. So it's very painful. And then, um, then she was very unwell really afterwards. And um, also what I saw, I was with Sister Julia, who's a, a wonderful nun, really, British nun, um, who works with Roma in Florence and she took me to a mass for the homeless um, on Sunday morning and we sat in the front row and it was you know much as you would expect with lots of rucksacks piled up at back and um, a lot of homeless men actually mostly and um, quite a few traditional Roma women so that I knew they were Roma because they were wearing traditional clothes. And when they didn't go up for mass, I asked Julia, you know, oh, why not? And she said, because um, some people in the Catholic Church say that the Roma shouldn't be allowed to take mass. And it was just so, after a sermon about love, you know, it was, it was pretty shocking. Um, so I hope... I don't know. At that conference, I talked to a, a, a Romanian academic, in fact, a Roma Romanian academic, and I said, I want to write about Roma music. You know, what, can you give me any advice? And he just said, well, it takes me three months to write, you know, a paragraph. So just, just don't get it wrong, because if you get it wrong, you're going to do more harm than good. So I was pretty... Um, it was a pretty anxious process, even writing what I did. Um, I'm glad I did it. I wish I could have done more, and I wish I could have said more about their music, really. I think, well, it's, be it's beautifully done, and you, you do bring us to, to see and to know things that we knew nothing about, which you do again and again in your book. Um, and it seems to me also to be... Uh, in our conversation, you talked about how a story just sort of begins with you and you sort of hold it in your hands and let it go where it will, where it must, which affects then the structure of the book. There are blind alleys, there are dispersals, speculations, yet it's extraordinarily rich with all the experience that you bring to it, the places you visit and the investigation of the Italian musical diaspora in the 18th and 19th centuries, the historical stuff, the contemporary um, exploration that you do in Piedmont and other places for folk traditions as well as the Roma. Um, and then you come back to Lev's violin and to Greg and the actual violin and it's, it's broken neck. So there's this sort of rather wonderful circling back. One comes back to where one starts and one comes, you're there with, with the 
the physical violin at the end, having made this extraordinary looping journey. Yes, and it, it is that, that thing of the story continuing to unfold, you know, it, it really right to the end, things started to happen in the present to the violin. Um, and one doesn't want to give away the end, but it was, it was extraordinary. In a sense, I suppose me writing this book kind of focused people's minds on, on the story of the violin. I mean, everybody just been happy to take that story at face value and never, never um, thought very much about it. And in fact, um, by writing a book about it, we did drill down to something much deeper about the violin. And, and, and so it um, changed its place in the world completely. For the good, I think, for yeah. the good. And it will continue. It'll now go forward. Last scene with a broken neck. So I'm yeah. thrilling. Yeah. So if we can raise um, money through crowdfunding, you know, it can, we can get it back to where it belongs in Greg's arms. And um, Because he loves he, it still? He adores it. Yeah. Um, it's, he's never, both Lev and Greg say they've never had a violin like it. And I think for Greg, you know, for Greg, it's got him so many jobs and it's taken him to so many places. And it's just, there's something about its voice that is the perfect expression of um, what he wants to say. You know, and it's, it's about its lower, there's a richness of tone at the bottom um, of its sound that he can't find anywhere else. The violins he's had since, you know, aren't a patch on it. Feels like the least that I can do really is to is to do this crowdfunding and to um, get it back to him. <laughs> Send us details of it, won't you, Helena? I look. For, I hope I will hear that violin one day. I really do. Thank you so much. It's a joy to read, and good luck with it. And we will sell as many as we can of it. And it's been. Please do. Oh yes, and it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.